Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. The Boardroom International Surfboard Show is coming up, presented by U.S. Blanks. May 2nd and 3rd at the Del Mar Fairgrounds, this multi-layered, consumer-facing surfboard manufacturing industry trade show features a hall filled with gorgeous surfboards, shapers, glassers, sanders, artists, board builders, and boards of all types, wetsuits, fins, tons of gear and art. May 2nd and 3rd at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. More info at boardroomshow.com. And this episode also brought to you by FYI CBD. My friends Caleb and John run FYI CBD, and you can get 20% off. Use promo code boardroom20 at checkout for 20% off. Pure wellness. It begins with FYI CBD. Check it out, FYICBD.com. Also, the California Gold Surf Auction coming up May 2nd. Lots begin closing. At noon Pacific Standard Time, May 2nd, we are already in the process of coalescing some absolutely gorgeous, unique, and culturally significant surfboards. I'm looking right now at one of Mark Fu's Waimea Bay boards that he rode during the Eddie Aikau Invitational, CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. And as many of you know, I plan on going out to the Telus Islands this season to surf in the waters of Sumatra, Indonesia at the newly built Monkeys Resort. It is a luxury resort providing better access to premier Telo Island waves. Monkeysresort.com. And finally, if you're listening in San Diego, do yourself a favor. Go check out Ranch 45 on Via de la Valle, just across from the racetrack next to Pamplemousse. I go to Ranch 45 all the time for my post-surf breakfast and lunch. They have premier food, a wonderful menu, and Pam, the owner, and their great chefs will cook you up a great meal. Check out Ranch 45 on Via de la Valle in Del Mar. Ranch45.com. A class act. That phrase gets thrown around a bit. He's a class act, one might say. He's a classy human being. Well, the gentleman on today's podcast, Bing Copeland, is, capital I, capital S, a class act. Intelligent, but with humility, witty, creative, smart, and sincere. If he hadn't caught the surf bug at age 14, Bing Copeland might have gone on to be a sports car engineer at General Motors or perhaps a career State Department diplomat somewhere in Europe. But luckily for us and for him, he caught the surf bug and his life was set. The Boardroom Podcast with Bing Copeland. Let us begin. Uh, Bing, as a student, as a young student, were you better at math or were you better at English? That's a good question. I was better at art and uh, mechanical drawing and um, and uh, shops like wood shop. Right. That was, those were my those were my best right best classes in school. Right. And tell me about your parents a little bit. I'm imagining growing up in Torrance, you sort of had like 
a standard American family with a mother that took care of the house and a father that was like an engineer or something like that. Right. Um, I actually, I was born in Torrance, but when I was, and and my parents lived in Redondo at the time. And when I was two years old, they built a house in Manhattan Beach on Ninth Street in Highland, and Manhattan Beach just two blocks from the beach. And that's where I basically grew up. That I remember growing up in and. You know. What was your What were your parents? Oh, what were What did your dad do for work? My father worked for a company called Air Research, uh, and he also worked for the gas company. And he eventually opened his own hardware store oh, in wow. Manhattan Beach. And Air Research was that sort of like um, part of the booming sort of aeronautical? Yes, yeah, it was. Because that it was just after you know, just after the war and all that. He was a technical writer, actually, for uh, air research. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Whatever that means. <laughs> I think he wrote probably documentation. Well, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And your mom? She was just... My a- mother um, worked for a doctor. Siblings? Do you have ch- brothers? Yes, I have uh, one older sister. It's uh, four years older than me. Oh, okay. Um She's passed away now, but yeah, but uh, that's the only sibling I had. Right. You and I were speaking at Surf Expo. We were talking a little bit about getting older, and <laughs> um, and you told me about your last wave. Right. Tell re- me a little bit about your I last. I recall wave. my last wave. It was a little place in Baja. I, I, at the time, I still had a, a house in Baja that I would spend a lot of time in my winters there. And uh, when I was 75 years old, I was surfing this little beach break spot <coughs> that uh, we enjoyed. I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I sort of had a reputation to uphold, and I didn't want to be seen surfing in a, in a, in a spot with a lot of guys. So, because I was mo- most, most likely, I mean, you turn into a kook as you get older. Right. And... Uh, so I was having trouble getting to my feet, so, so consequently I was belly sliding a lot of waves. And this one last wave, I remember it was a fun little wave. I mean, when you're belly sliding, every wave's overhead. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, I was belly sliding in, and I got in, in near the shore break, and there were some rocks on the beach. And, and I thought, well, I better do an island pullout. So I grabbed the nose and, and tried to dig it in, and I couldn't make it, couldn't make it. And finally it just washed up on the beach and broke the nose off. And I just kind of said to myself, you know, this is it. And I've talked to other people. I've talked to like uh, like Cap Jacobs and uh, John McFarland and some of the other older guys that uh, have said the same thing. They said they just uh, su- suddenly realized that they're not having fun anymore. I mean, mostly it's because of physical limitations. Yeah. And uh, it's just you just can't really have a good time anymore so it's time to hang it up yeah and when i talk to younger guys guys in their 50s and 60s and 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 well i call them younger uh thank you <laughs> uh and i tell them that uh, you know one day you'll realize that that it's time to quit and they go oh no not me i'm gonna surf till i die <laughs> yeah but uh they're wrong yeah you know they, there is a limit and and I'm fascinated by this because I'm mid fifties, yeah. and I often think about this: like, when does that time come? Because, as you know, your mm-hmm. life is so wrapped around this concept of 
of you being a surfer, the identity of being a surfer. And, and I guess we're always surfers, no matter what, till the day we die, even you, if we don't ride. Yeah. You, you look at a wave and you, and you look for the, for the curl and you look for the section and, you know, you, you don't look at waves the same once you're a surfer, but uh, that's for sure. Do you ever consider that being a surfer, the identity of a surfer, has has kept you back from fulfilling maybe something that you wanted to go do in life, like because you were sort of attached to the coastline? No, I think I was grateful that I was attached to the coastline and uh, didn't have to go back behind the the Pacific Coast Highway and get a real job. You know, that, yeah. that didn't appeal to me at all. And was that always sort of the 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 primary reasoning behind having a, a company and, and a livelihood in the surf industry was I need to stay in the water and this is a means to an end. Uh, it wasn't a plan. It just, it just evolved that way. Yeah. You know, I, I was a surfer, you know, and, and then I did spend two years in the coast guard in Hawaii and then a year sailing after that. And not. was the Coast Guard a part of this, hey, we need to stay, you and Rick Stoner joined the Coast Guard together, I think it was in 55 or something well, like we that. We joined the Coast Guard when we were in high school. We co- we joined the reserves. How, and why school. was that? Was this a part well, of... Well, because uh, we wanted to avoid the draft. Oh, interesting. You know, the, I didn't want to be drafted into the Army and be in the infantry. That, that was, was this during the Korean War? Uh, this was between wars. Yeah. But they still had the draft. Wow. They still were drafting people. So... So, so what was your fear of the draft that led I didn't you to want the Coast to be, I didn't want to be an army guy and invading a beach somewhere. Right. You know? I, I, I wanted to be near the ocean, of course. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and the Coast Guard just seemed like an easy way out. Uh, it, it meant two years active duty instead of three or four, which is the army, I guess. And, and we joined the reserves in high school. Where, and so we went to San Francisco for our two-week physical uh, uh, training. And uh, th- then that's all we really needed. And once we, once we flew to Hawaii and we surfed for several months, we started running out of money. We decided we'll just go active in the Coast Guard, and they allowed us to stay there. So it was great. It was a wonderful, wonderful way to spend a, my service. You yeah, know. that's a really yeah. good plan. Now, did you, when you went to, say, the Coast Guard facility in in Honolulu or whatever and you said okay I'm here I'm raising my hand for active duty was it 90% sure that you got to stay in Hawaii or it was, was there you it could- was oh, okay. yeah. so it you- wasn't a question oh that's they great said, they said no problem you're gonna we're gonna sign you to a ship right here and uh, and and we you know we were docked right there at uh, right you know right near uh, the Aloha Tower mm-hmm. it's there and uh so it was great. We got to surf Ala Moana every night after work. <laughs> oh my! <God>. You're laughing. <laughs> yeah. If you don't, listeners don't know, Bing's a goofy foot. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love to go left. So that's fascinating. That um, and this was you and Rick Stoner. Rick Stoner and myself. Yeah. And you both sort of had this. Hey, man, this draft thing could come get us. Let's do the smart move. Here. Absolutely. Everybody in my era. What about uh, Greg Knoll? Well, somehow he avoided it. Yeah. But he's a he's conniver, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> no, he, uh, I don't know how he avoided it, but maybe by getting married. Oh, you know, interesting. That could, that could have been it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned prior to this, you, you spent some time in Hawaii. 
I want to, and help me out with the years, but I want to say like 57, something like that, right? 55 to 57. Okay. And you were in the Coast Guard, but prior to the Coast Guard, you spent like nine months just surfing. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We went over surfing. I went over for the six guys, George Capu, uh, Sonny Vardaman, Rick Stoner. Oh, uh, Steve Voorhees, another friend from school. Yeah. So... So the South Bay crew of guys. South Bay crew of guys, and we went. We went first. Uh, we rented a little place in Waikiki on Lilio Kalani Street, right up from Queens, and uh, surf Queens every day, two or three times. Oh man! And uh, you know, no crowds. This is 1955. Yeah. Right? And uh, warm who's water. out in the water with you? Is there a rabbit kakai out in the water? Well, not then, but we did run into rabbit later and, yeah. and those guys. But we basically surfed by ourselves at Queens. Wow. Almost, you know, just couple, several times a day. Yeah. We'd go come in and rest or go get a couple scoops of rice or something. And did it get, does, does life get any better than that? No, <laughs> it was, you know, we were sleeping on the floor, you know, in sleeping bags and that kind of thing. I mean, it was crazy. But anyway, we were there for like, Three or four weeks, maybe, and then it was time. You know, we went in the in the fall, so it was time to move out to the country because we wanted to surf Makaha yeah. and that. So we went out. We we bought an old rusty car and uh, drove it out to Makaha, and we rented a Quonset hut at Makaha, and we and we stayed there for several months, and that's where we really got our introduction into riding bigger waves, and luckily. We got to work our way up. I mean, we were still, you know, high, just out of high school kids. And, yeah. And um, it was pretty frightening to think of riding big waves. But we got to, you know, we started in five or six foot waves. And, and we were surfing every day several times. And so we were in good enough shape. And as as it got bigger, we just kind of grew with it. And, you know, there was guys like George Downing was out when it was, you know, when the good times were there. And and uh, Peter Cole and those guys. And, and and did you just watch those we guys, got, or did, well, they, did they take with you them. under? We surfed there? with them and got advice from them. Yeah, and were they friendly in that oh, way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were stoked to see young oh, yeah, 19-year-old yeah. Californians yeah, there yeah. having a good time. Yeah, it wasn't a problem at all. Right. Yeah. Do you recall... Buzzy Trent. What was yeah. it like hanging out with Buzzy Trent or just oh. surfing with him? I mean, did, did you get... He was a good friend. Yeah. You know, that's all I can say. Yeah. It was a, you know, um, it, was, it was fun. He that's was amazing. a character. Yeah. <laughs> How many Quonset huts were there? It seems like everybody lived in a Quonset hut. Yeah, I think there was Macaw. probably quite a lot left over from the war. Was it in that valley there? It's right behind the break. I mean, we could hear the when it got big. We could hear it when we were sleeping. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah. we were we were just a couple blocks basically right. from the from the beach. And um, I think I saw in the movie. By the way, Bing has put out. Matt and Margaret Calvani and, and Bing Copeland and a crew of guys have put out a great movie that everyone should see. What's the name exactly of the movie? Bing? Well, it, we didn't really, we, we had a hard time coming up with a name and they ended up with the Think Bing. And yeah. it was a play off of a, of, a, of a display ad we had in Surfer Magazine. It said Think Big, but then we... We just put a, you know, a little, one of those things in a... yeah. And change the big to Bing, put an right. N in it. Right, right. So, so and that, and so, but anyway, everybody just started calling it the Think Bing movie. So that's the way it, that stuck. Okay, and and in the movie, 
Um, there's a little section where Greg Knoll talks about first surfing Waimea, like the one of the first sessions at Big Waimea, and you were out in the water. What right. is that like? I mean, what is Waimea Bay like when you're well, 20 you know, years old? Well, it wasn't giant. It right. was big, but it wasn't. It wasn't I, proper the, Waimea. Yeah. You mean like? Well, the whole thing is, we don't even know if it was really the first day. I mean, other people may have. Who knows? There's other yeah. claims and everything. Yeah. All I know is I was out with Greg and. And Mike Stang and a couple of other guys, and uh, it was uh, it was pretty scary, but we were able to catch a wave, and and you know it wasn't a death-defying right. feat, it, right. but it was. Uh, but it was a new barrier that you guys had yeah, broken yeah, down here. Yeah. And it was. Uh, what was it? Where did you park back then in those? Oh, days? any right Just, on the right on the street. There, yeah, was no, well, there was no problem parking. Yeah. There was no no crowds. Right. There was no parking lot either. No right? parking lot. Yeah. No, no, just on the road. And you guys are like, look, it's too big for sunset. This is the only place where we can get out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That was basically it. That sounds kind of spooky. Um, it was, but they're safety in numbers. Yeah. You know, so we kind of, uh, I, I don't know if I would have gone if Greg hadn't gone. Right. <laughs> you sort of go, well, I kind of have to now. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, yeah. But it, I could have just as easily stood on the on the on the on the street and watched the waves. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but the, he and went in and Stang was going in. I went, oh boy, I better do it. Right. <laughs> so. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating, um, you know, just you in particular, the way that you sort of your life is weaved in between all of these characters and their lives are weaved with you. Right. And right. and I think of Greg Nolan, of course, as we look in. On website, on your website, um, you and Greg as teenagers hung out on the pier at Manhattan Beach. Somehow or another, you sort of were mentored by Dale Velzi. Oh, absolutely! Nope. And you worked for Dale Velzi, and not for pay, <laughs> <laughs> which means yeah, you worked for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you know, uh, um, Greg and I have been friends now for just over seventy years. I mean, I was. I think I was uh, 13 or 14, and he was a year younger than I was. And it was 1949 when I first met him. <clears throat> I was uh, standing on the rail of the pier watching Velzi and some of the older guys surf. And in those days, they were just surfing paddle boards or, or, or cook boxes, you know, hollow cook boxes, and planks, balsa and uh, redwood uh, planks. And they really, and there was a like Pacific Systems Homes boards? Yes, yeah. that's what they were. Yeah. And uh, and so I was standing there watching them, and this young guy came up and st- stood beside me, and we started talking about the surf and this and that, and uh, introduced ourselves, and it was Greg. Yeah. And in those days, he was about a foot shorter than I was and a lot skinnier. Right. <laughs> which has changed. Right. Um but anyway, so Vel- Velzi off. Velzi at that time was a lifeguard on the pier too, and so he uh, one day when we were watching, he walked up to us and asked us if we want to try a board. So he said he had a, a, like an eight six. These weren't foam boards. This no, was no, no, solid no. wood, right? Solid, yeah, yeah, balsa wood and balsa. redwood. Yeah, the one we tried, the first one we tried. It weighed about 85 pounds, and I don't think we made weighed much more than that. Yeah. And it was heavy, so we had to drag it, drag it through the sand to get it to the water. And, you know, you stop and rest once or twice. And Hey, just a quick break in the podcast to tell you about FYI CBD. 
a safe, legal, and 100% natural way to replenish the endocannabinoid system in your human body, resulting in unparalleled health benefits. CBD also stimulates appetite and relieves pain in those joints and in that back. FYICBD.com. Use promo code BOARDROOM20 at checkout for 20% off. Go there now, buy some FYICBD. BOARDROOM20, 20% off. FYICBD.com. Now back to the podcast. Paddle that thing out is one of the things you, you, you lay on it and start paddling, and it takes about five or six strokes before the thing starts moving. Right. <laughs> it's so heavy. So once you get it moving, then it's hard to stop. Yeah. But uh, no, we ended up uh, purling a bunch. And finally, I remember the, the first time I, I caught a wave and didn't purl, and I stood up and, and I was riding straight off into the beach. I was going, oh man, this is my sport. You know, right. I, I wanted to do this forever. So, so I, you know, I, you could just tell right then that was that. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And and working for Velzy Shop. So d- is this where you sort of well, then, first got your your like a taste of what the surfboard building industry might become? Like, I mean, did he teach you? What did he? What well, did you learn? Well, okay, from when, when Greg and I started, Velzy hadn't started building boards yet. That's uh, he was the lifeguard at the time, and then he started. He shaped a couple boards under the pier, and then he was making a mess with shavings and the balsa board, shavings and so forth. And so he got, you know, got flack from the city. So he went up and he rented a little shop, which was actually the very first surf shop on the coast, I think. Right. Ever, really. Yeah, is ever, what, yeah. Is what yeah. Right up a history block, would a block, say. A block yeah. up from the pier. And so that's where we, that was our hangout from then on. We would hang around there, and uh, in the evenings, I mean, when I was like six, 15, 16, something like that, Velzy uh, would go up to the liquor store and buy me a quart of Oli beer or something, and I, I could sit in there and drink, drink beer with him and stuff. He also... Uh, he, uh, I, you know, I would I would cut templates for him first. Like he would he would draw the templates on the on the balsa blank, and I would get up there and stand up on it and and, and cut the templates out. And uh, I did a bunch of little things, swept swept the floor and all this and that, just hanging around. Just it was just an honor to be to be there. And and he liked to drink coffee. He always smoked and drank coffee and. Uh, I never smoked, but I would go down and I learned to drink coffee with him. We'd go right down, just down one block from the from his shop was a place called uh, Betty or not Betty's uh, Pearl Snow. That's another another restaurant in my history. Yeah, um, the White Stop Cafe, and uh, we would go in there. He Velzy would say, "Hey, Bingo, let's go down to let's go down to Lulu's and get a cup of mud." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so I go down there and. I learned to drink coffee, learned to like it. Yeah. But and listen to his stories, you know, it was just classic. And and as far as building surfboards, you just saw basically just, through osmosis you saw him laying watching, up gluing up blanks and watching so. him gluing blanks, watching him shape them. You know, but I never at during that time I never really thought that I would be building boards. Yeah. I, I had no yeah, no thought of it. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you as we go a little long, along here where that feeling came in. Sure. Yeah. So you did. You mentioned that you after the Coast Guard, you and Rick Stoner, you got on a sailboat. Were did you guys buy a boat? No, no, no. Here's what happened. Uh, while we were in the Coast Guard, we were surfing Ala Moana all the time. 
and, and uh, we parked our station wagon, which we slept in right there, in, you know, at the parking lot at Alamona. Uh, we met uh, a couple that had a yacht and uh, started talking with them. They they liked us and, and wanted us to, to, to uh, sail in some of the races on the weekend around Honolulu. They had sailboat races, and so we crewed for him and we got to be friends with them, and they gave us a key to the showers and the bathroom so we could park our station wagon right there, and we had our hot showers. And Did you learn to sail from these people, or did you learn to sail in the I Coast learned Guard? to sail prior to that. Right. I learned to sail in Sabbats at Portuguese Band Club uh-huh. um, when I was Which is Palos Verdes. Young. Palos Verdes, yeah. 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 And then we sailed a little catamaran, we, or a little uh, uh, outrigger that we had. We sailed it in the, Alamoa, Alo, in the canal, the yeah. Alloway Canal. These people were just became friends, yeah. you know, and uh, they were older than we were. Do you remember these people? Oh, very well. No, In fact, what, what I, are ju- their names? I just recently, uh, Bill and Jean Schallenberg. Oh, okay. And uh, I just the other day had breakfast with their granddaughter, who I'd, I'd never, of course, never met. Right. But she looked me up, and, and uh, I was in Redondo Beach. And, uh, How great is that? I had her down. She, yeah, she didn't drive, so she spent $40 on a, on a lift. To yeah. get there, right. and I'm sitting there buying her breakfast, and we're talking about her grandfather and her grandmother, and 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 all of our experiences. I was showing her my pictures, and she showed her me a couple pictures of 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 me actually right. uh, that I hadn't seen before, and so I felt kind of guilty for her after spending all that money to get down to see me. So I gave her twenty bucks to go back, or, right. or forty bucks to go back, two twenties. So, so the, this couple, the Schallenbergers, they they had you and Rick crew for them, and so did you? Well, were, were they on the boat with you? Or? Here's what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, once once we got uh, out of the Coast Guard, which was the end of '57, uh, we returned to California and 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 uh, got our lifeguard jobs back where we could work. So in the, in the spring of 58, we were lifeguarding, and they, they had visited their their family in the east, and they were coming through California, and they just stopped and said, we're going to sail around the world. You guys want to want to be our crew? And we said, sure. We dropped everything and got a year's leave of absence from the lifeguards and, <clears throat> and flew back to Honolulu with them and worked on the boat for a while, and then we set off for Tahiti. It was, How big was this boat? The boat was about 30, wow. six, 38 feet. Small. Small yeah, boat. Yeah. 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 Four people. Four people and a one-year-old baby. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How old were the Schallenbergs at this time? Uh, yeah, I, that's a good question. They were at least five or six years older than... Right. So maybe 28 or 30 or yeah, something Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And yeah, they had the one-year-old, Billy. Was the, was his name, and uh, we put uh, there was all cloth diapers in those days for for kids like that. So yeah. we took and folded a corner over the of the cloth diaper and put a brass grommet in it, yeah. so you could hang it over, hang it over the tail <laughs> of the boat, and, and let it. Of course, they rinsed it out in fresh water, but yeah. but that's how they cleaned the diapers, uh-huh. just dragging them behind the boat. That's fascinating. Anyway, we were twenty nine days without seeing ouch without seeing uh another sign of life another another boat airplane nothing. yeah i mean it was that's yeah i've done that i know that feeling it's unbelievable it's pretty incredible yeah yeah but then then we spent a month or so in uh tahiti and enjoyed that um in fact we really enjoyed it 
How, how long did you stay in Tahiti? We, we were there about a month. And as surfers, did you get waves? We didn't know there was waves. Yeah. We, we rented motors, bikes, and rode around the island, never saw a surfable wave. Yeah. So we didn't know about Outer reefs. Totally. and all that. Right. Yeah. No, we... Yeah. So we had our surfboards. Yeah. In fact, we had them on the on the. What awning. kind of boards did you have with you on? We this had boat? Uh, Velzy balsa boards. Balsa Velzy. Yeah. yeah, the pig shape. That was just the beginning. Were they chambered or no? Just the being no. Back then they didn't chamber no, balsa. No, no. Just in the beginning of the pig shape. Okay. In good 50, boards. 59. Oh, it's good a, turning boards. They were great. Yeah. In fact, the, our two boards are still well. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on to this. Where are they? Well, they're hanging in in the uh, surf club at the Piha. Uh, life surf life saving headquarters in New Zealand. In New Zealand, in, oh. in, in Piha, New Zealand. Wow, that's so, pretty cool. Yeah. Well, we what happens is after after we left after we left Tahiti, we were sailing off, and in their boat, they their mass split. We were right just outside of Morea, and they had to go back to Tahiti. Rick and I knew we had to get back within a year to keep our lifeguard jobs, so. We got off their boat and signed on with uh, an Australian 69-year-old retired harbor pilot from uh, Australia, from Brisbane, Australia, I guess he was from. And he had he had uh, four young Australian guys on, and, and we went on, and we were, the, so the six of us, I mean, it was a pretty rowdy group. I bet, and it must have been a bigger boat. <laughs> it was a bigger boat. Yeah. yeah. So we sailed with them, and we, we, we ended up on uh, Thanksgiving day of 1957 in Auckland, New Zealand. And we, Rick and I met uh, a couple of young guys that were on the dock, and we asked if there was any surf, and they said, oh yeah, on the other side, on the Tasman side, and over at Piha, the waves are good. And so they said, do you want to go? And we said, sure. And they said, we'll take you there. So the next day they, they came, and we loaded our boards onto uh, Onto their car, and this was our first experience driving on the other side of the road. Right, <laughs> so that was weird. Yeah, and we drove up there, and as we were coming down the hill into Piha, Rick and I saw these waves that kind of looked like you know, it was like five foot, six foot, maybe San Onofre kind of waves. I mean, they looked great. Yeah. So they drove us up to the to the surf club, and uh, we got out and and kind of introduced ourselves to the to the surf life saving club members. Yeah. They they didn't have surfboards. All they had was uh, called a surf ski. Yeah, you know, with a big fourteen foot long big scoop in the nose and, and a rope and a double bladed paddle and foot straps. And yeah, they would stand and go straight off. So we said, uh, you know, we like to try your surf, and 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 they said, well, the waves are really dangerous, but but we'll send somebody, a couple guys out on the surf skis to watch out for you. And so we said, okay, whatever. <laughs> And anyway, it turns out we got out and they didn't, because <laughs> we could turn turtle and go into yeah, waves. And, sure. And they, they didn't know how good no. you guys and were. Then, and then Rick and I just caught, you know, half a dozen waves, eight or ten waves maybe at the most. And we kind of did, kind of showing off, because there were a lot of guys on the beach watching. And we were going behind each other and kicking out and doing all the stuff you do. Yeah. And they just went crazy. Yeah. When we came in, they were guys were neck deep in the water going, give me a go, mate. Yeah, you know, they all wanted they to try the boards. The bed, yeah. So our boards literally never left the, the water for the next, I don't know, the next couple of weeks anyway. I mean, yeah. they, during the daylight hours, somebody was riding our boards. Wow. So Rick and I are going, hmm, you know, these guys need some surfboards. Yeah. 
And uh, so we make, had friends with this young fellow who had a... Tomato. So did any of the Kiwis say, hey, we have seen this type of surfing before? No, I mean, no, I think this is no. sort of an underrated part of surf history that, that Bing Copeland and Rick Stoner introduced stand-up surfing to the, to the Kiwis. Not stand-up. Stand-up is... Well, I mean... Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, the modern-day surfboard. Yeah, the modern-day surfboard. Yeah, and Because yeah. they weren't standing up on their surf skis. They no. were on their butts. However, what's interesting about that is two years prior to that... Greg and, and a bunch of guys went to Australia, Australia right. and and introduced the modern board. Right. And two years later... It hadn't jumped it over. It hadn't jumped over, you know, without the internet and this, you know, yeah. that social media, you know, right. the word doesn't travel as, as yeah. fast in those days. So, so it was I mean, two that's years not later. a stretch, right? I mean, that's, the history is the history, right? You guys, Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, and yeah. to me, that's, that's yeah. sort of an in fact, unknown. In fact, 50 years after... Uh, 50, the 50 year anniversary of us introducing surfboards they sent a ticket to my wife and I to come over and we had a week long celebration we got a key to the city they oh had, this they is so great I was going to ask you about this I yeah. hope that they took that no, they, they, they acknowledge oh, yeah. it they're yeah. just like these are the two guys yeah, yeah. And they you're have like our... the father of Kiwi surfing <laughs> no you are yeah, uh, yeah. Not, you know they surfed but they didn't surf on the kind of boards we had. But they weren't standing up. They were sitting on their well, bus, they were, right? they, No, they'd stand up. Oh, they would stand h- hold up. Hold the paddle and oh, okay. that, that kind of thing. Oh, they did stand up. I yeah. thought they were on their bus. Kind of, kind of parallel stance and go straight off. Right. And, and the rope kind of was taut from the, you know, so okay. they could lean back on it. it was, but they weren't using the rail no, and riding no, the modern pig no the way they had you no were idea. surfing off they the fin no or whatever. Yeah. This is cool. So, Very so, cool. Yeah, so we're... Kind of famous over there for having yeah. having started all that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great honor. I mean, yeah, yeah. good stuff. Yeah, is Rick Stoner still with us? Or did no, he Rick or? died. He had a uh, a brain hemorrhage or something in his uh, probably in his fifties, late oh, fifties, wow. early sixties. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. Hey, a quick break in the podcast to tell you about Monkey Surf Resort in the Telos Islands in Sumatra, Indonesia, providing better access to premier Tello Island Waves. I'm going to be going out to the Monkeys Resort this season. I'm extremely excited about it. I've been to the Telos Islands before. There are tons of super good waves, and I'm going to do my best to get into a few of those at the Monkeys Resort. Monkeysresort.com, providing better access to premier Tello Island Waves. Check them out, monkeysresort.com. And now back to the podcast. And were you close with him? Very close. Yeah, up yeah, until... Yeah, we were in each other's weddings and... And we're talking, for the listeners that don't know, if you've seen the Rick Surfboards label, that's Rick Stone right. or Rick Surfboards. Yeah. And he was a lifeguard for a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, he died as a lifeguard, yeah. Yeah. Permanently. Well, in fact, we started my surfboard business when when we came back from New Zealand. After, after building those boards, we felt we could do it. So when we came back... Uh, we started shaping some boards and reshaping some old balsa boards and stuff in my parents' garage, and we thought, well, let's build some new boards. So, so uh, we found some styrofoam and epoxy, and we building some styrofoam and epoxy boards in my parents' garage. And then we started making too much noise and dust and smell, and we got kicked out. So we started a little shop on the Strand in Hermosa Beach, right on the you know right on right by the Biltmore Hotel there, right on right on the beach, uh, and started building boards and that was right when walker started blowing foam 
So, I was just going to ask you about that, yeah, about yeah. the concept was, of being in New Zealand and finding foam. Yeah. Obviously, the idea of building boards in this way, this type of construction, this type of fabrication, you knew that foam was the ideal core when you're sailing in, in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, when yeah, did all we, that come about? Like that? I, don't, I don't really know. I, all I know is that, that styrofoam was the only thing we could get. Right, but you know, and your, yeah. but your boards were wood boards. The boards you had on the sailboat. they were balsa boards. Yeah. Balsa, yeah. yeah and you get to, to New Zealand, and you're like, we don't need wood. We can just use foam. I mean, that yeah. seems like a big leap. Like to find. Well, we knew that that we knew that styrofoam and epoxy uh, glassing yeah. would, would work. Right. Um, for some reason, I don't know where we learned that, but. But that's what we did. Yeah. And we built maybe... Probably because of the... And I'm sorry to interrupt, but maybe it's because of the the Kiwi culture so sailing-oriented and so boat-building-oriented that their culture there, maybe they're like, hey, well, let's just use boat resin, you guys, and we've got some... I don't know. It could be. Who knows? I I, I don't recall. Other than I know that this Peter Byers that we met, who had a tomato patch there. I mean, he grew, grew tomatoes commercially, actually. Um, and he was really interested, and uh, he took us into Auckland, and we found the materials that we needed. Uh, we shaped the styrofoam with a. Uh, we cut out the templates, and then you know, it was all block. You know, it isn't. Yeah. It isn't a. It isn't blank. a blank like right. we have today. And we shaped with a with a cheese grater, right. and sandpaper, and this and that. And and they were kind of crude, but they were okay. You know, yeah. and and I remember thinking to myself. You know, having watched Velzi so much, and I'm thinking about this, hey, you know, I, I can do this. Yeah. I can I can build surfboards. So when we came back in 59... You're strictly now foam foam and, and fiberglass cloth and resin. You're not even thinking wood at this no, point. Yeah. No, no, because no. Because Walker's blowing foam. Yeah, Walker was... At that time, Walker had just started blowing foam. Was he in the South Bay? <clears throat> no. Um, Velzi and everybody was starting to use it. Yeah, that's what we used, and yeah. and it ends up. I was on this nice little shop in the Strands, right next to our restaurant. It was really cool. You know, Rick and I. It was Bing and Rick at the time, and uh, and eventually Rick decided he was going to get married, and he thought it would be smarter to to be a permanent lifeguard, which better more security, yeah. which I understood. Yeah, and so I bought him out at that time in the, within the first year. Yeah. And just changed it to surfboards by Bing and then Bing surfboards eventually. That era, that early 60s to mid 60s in the South Bay, you've, obviously you've got Velzy, you've got Hap Jacob surfboards, you've got Greg Knoll mm-hmm. surfboards, mm-hmm. you've got Bing surfboards. I mean, this was a, the heyday of the surfboard manufacturing industry. Would well, you suggest it, it, that? It, 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 looking back on it, it. it was it is but at the time it was we were just doing what came natural you know the natural thing once once i start once i started building you know i had i had lifeguard friends that i was building boards for when i had the little shop on the strand and then i i was a member of the haggerty surf club and and some of those guys were buying boards and i guess it it made people feel that that i was a legitimate board builder so i started getting orders and I, then I figured, well, I got to get an electric planer. So I went and bought an electric electric planer. And, that, and then I started making too much noise in this shop because I was right next to a restaurant. Then I got kicked out. So then I moved up to a little industrial building that's more, a little more inland. 
And that's where it really all started uh, right. to be a com- real commercial. Yeah. More than just a play fun thing, it was a commercial venture. Right. Point. All of a sudden, you are no, truly No in real plan, though, for the future. I mean, we right. just took one day at a time, and and it, it grew by itself. It, it, there was so much business in those days because there was not many people building boards that it wasn't a problem. I mean, I would imagine in, 19, let's say, 1964, 65, something like that, between those guys that I mentioned and you, mm-hmm. you're looking at 300,000 square feet of, of manufacturing plant. Like, how many boards are you guys doing a year? Total. <laughs> I know you can't count for them, but what, yeah. what were you doing? What was your best year I, as far I, as number I, of boards? I, I can't say by year. I can tell you what we did by day, though. Okay. <laughs> we'll multiply that by 300. <laughs> well, not, you, you know, you have winter and summer, right. so it changes right. things. Yeah. But... but at, the, at that point, when I had this uh, little uh, manufacturing factory in the industrial zone, I was selling retail out of there. And then Greg Knoll had a had a retail shop on the highway. Hap Jacobs had a retail shop on the highway. So I figured I better get a retail shop on the highway. So I did. Yeah. And so then I was manufacturing in the in the industrial building and I was selling out of the shop on the highway. And uh, then then I. I moved from the that industrial place to another one down in Hermosa Beach, that uh, a bigger factory right next to the police station, actually, which wasn't always the perfect thing, place to be. <laughs> With the crew I had, this is in the mid '60s, you know, yeah. the early early to mid '60s. Uh, we were making at one point. Well, this is I would say in the, in the if you want to talk about the uh, most boards we were building, it, yeah. was, it was in the. In the later part of the 60s. Yeah, okay. How uh, many boards were we doing a day? We were doing 40 a day. 40 a day. Yeah. Dan Ben, I had two shapers that could each do 20 a day each. uh, Dan Ben Nixon and and Mike Eaton. Mike Eaton's brother would would, uh, come in at night and template 40 boards. 20 for Dan and 20 for Mike. Wow. And they would come in at 6 o'clock in the morning with their big Rockwell planers and and That'll hash work. them out, you know. And, and these were easy boards to build at that era, you know. It was the it was the Karma and the foil and those kind of things. And they, uh-huh. were, and they were pretty, the blanks were pretty close ratio. And, uh, you know, it was a matter of skinning them and the thicknessing and turning the rails. And, and, and then, and then, my problem was keeping everything going, keeping the machines running, keeping the keeping the materials coming, the glass, the resin, the styrene, the acetone, and tape, and sandpaper, and the, you know. Yeah, keeping the shop just resourced. Making, you're just making it run, yeah. yeah. yeah so. And how many boards were you sending to the East Coast? I mean, in the beginning, well, at that point, we were, we were sending quite a lot. Yeah. We were sending probably... 50 to 60 percent of our production was going to the east coast but prior yeah. to that in the early 60s i didn't even i didn't even advertise for it. in fact i said no dealers please wow because well the way it happened we when we started we all on the on the highway there was hap jacobs and, and greg nola myself and we were all around 125 dollars for a board and then all of us to the locals. We were all selling to locals. Then yeah. all of a sudden, the East Coast people find out about surfing, and they start calling us up saying, uh, "What's your wholesale price?" And I went, "Heck, I don't have a wholesale price." Yeah. You know, uh, what do you mean wholesale price? Well, right. we have to have a wholesale price so that we can retail it. 
And so that was a big problem in the beginning of the East Coast, uh, yeah. West Coast uh, right. dis- distribution thing. But eventually it worked out where they, they took, added a little more at their end, and, yeah. and, and we gave a little bit at our end. Mm. And, and it turned out there was it was never a good markup for surfboards, and it still isn't really. Yeah. But uh, like clothing is a lot better than sports. For sure, clothing, yeah. yeah. What about Becker? Was was Becker in this 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 crew well, of like I the, just think of South Bay surfboard yeah, building in the sixties. At 60s. the time, at the time that I had Dan and Mike doing forty boards a day, Becker was doing a, a good twenty boards a day himself at Rick's. At Rick, he was yeah, working at Rick. He was yeah. he was with Rick, and at that and then Greg Knoll was in one building. I was right behind Greg Knoll buildings, and then uh, the Rick building was right down there, and uh, the, the glass shop for. For Hap was there, uh, right there in this yeah, group. That's what I mean. And like there the, was more board. I would say there's more boards built there than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I, I would any, agree any, with that. Any, I, any other town in the world? I mean, at that during that period, yeah, you guys were just pounding yeah, boards out it of there. Was all four shops were just moving tons of boards to the East Coast, all over the yeah, world. Yeah, it was crazy. What about? Um, it seemed like it was a good time to make a living as a surfboard shaper. Like I've seen pictures of Mike Eaton. I think he had some crazy sports car like a Mercedes or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and it seemed as if Mike Eaton was probably making a pretty damn good living. Like I, I in today's terms, I would suggest to you maybe over a hundred thousand dollars a year in today's terms, which then might have been like fifty thousand yeah, yeah, dollars a year. Yeah, or something. Absolutely. Like, he was both, killing it, both, right? Both Dan and Mike were making tons of money. Yeah, uh, shaping my boards. Yeah, uh, for that period, right? Yeah. But yeah. they were worth it, and know, they were working they, hard. They obviously. worked hard. Yeah. yeah. You brought in Dick Brewer, and you brought in Donald Takayama, and, and you brought in David Nueva as sort of a figurehead as well. Okay, first, uh, first one was Takayama. Yeah, uh, and this was before that era where we were building. This so is many like sixty-three, something like that. Uh, yeah, sixty-three, sixty-four. Uh, it's when I brought in Donald. Or, or, or I somehow, didn't he come over to shape for Hap, and then somehow he ended I, up in your stable. I think he came over to shape for Velzy. Oh, okay. Originally, and uh, I don't know how I acquired him, but uh, we were all surfing, you know, at this in the same place at the Hermosa Pier, and this and that. And uh, Velzy I, must not have been too happy to have no, his star guy, or was well, there no, no it animosity? wasn't a star guy taken. I think I, you know, because Donald shaped for a lot of different guys throughout oh, his time, right? Um, so it wasn't like he was just with one label, or well, at a time he was, right? Like he, when he was with me, he was with me, right? And he was with Hap before well, you, no, after, well, oh. maybe a little bit before because because Hap and Velzy were kind of together, right? You know, and so I think Donald worked shaped a little bit there, but. When he was shaped for me, he was shaped. Was there just, a sense that you stole Donald no, Takayama? No, like he no, just said, no. "How did it? How, how did it go down?" I don't. I don't remember. Yeah. All I yeah. remember is Donald and I became friends, and uh, he and uh, he's like, "Hey, I need he, some more." He wanted to, be, yeah, he wanted to build a model, right? His model, and I said, "Sure, let's do it." And um, it was very successful, really successful. He shaped them all. They're beautiful boys. Uh, yeah, they're beautiful, and. Uh, and then one day he said, uh, then there's this young Hawaiian kid that's a really good nose rider. Why don't we bring him in and, and make him a nose ride model? Yeah. And uh, I said, well, that's fine, but aren't you worried that it will cut into the sales of your model? He said, oh, no, it's not, not a problem. It won't be a problem. 
I said, okay. So we brought, David came in, and, and uh, he was really young then. Yeah. And uh, so Donald and I worked together, and, and actually uh, some of my other shapers and stuff, and, and we developed the, the Nose Rider. Was it Donald mostly that did mostly the, the Don- David Nueva Nose Rider? Pretty much. I the, mean, that the, first the iteration, that, that really we just, nice. We all decided to concave, because this was just after the Tom Mori Nose Riding Contest, uh-huh. where everybody experimented with things, and so that concave nose was the thing. And then, and Donald said, you know, let's let's turn the blank around. Instead of the kick in the nose, we'll put the kick in the tail, and that'll hold the tail down, and make it also make it turn better, and and hold the tail down for nose rides. And and so that's that's what we did, and that board became really really popular. As that board's know, popular to this it's day, still popular. and it's relevant yeah. in the water yeah. as much as it yeah. is the reverence that we have for it from back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. design. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. then the, we started selling so many of those that uh, it was cutting into Donald's boards. And so then he gets pissed off yeah. because, because he's being outsold. Something I told him that could happen yeah. and, and warned him. And so then he decided to go to HAP and make his boards at HAP. Okay. So, you know, he, he was a little tough to get along with at times, but he was always a good friend. Yeah. Yeah, sweet guy, but had his moments like all of us, I imagine. Well, and he's Hawaiian. <laughs> right. And I have, um, actually, upcoming in the next auction, we have a Bing Donald Takayama model oh, at the auction. And uh-huh. it's a gorgeous board. Yeah. Has it been redone? No. Yeah. It has that black, like, like slip check kind of up on oh, the yeah, nose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's yeah. original, right? Well, we didn't put it on right, in the factory, but guys put, yeah. guys, whoever bought it originally probably put it on. Yeah. And it doesn't have a number on it, which is interesting. There was no, well, I looked because I knew you keep really good Donald records. Put his real tiny on the side stringers, not on the center string. Oh, really? So I need yeah. to take a peek. Yeah, take a look. At, take a look at the side stringers. If I come up with a number, I can hound you, and you can find I, out the. I number. can find out who we built it for, yeah. or what shop, and yeah. the date it was built. Yeah. Okay, I'll take a closer look. And then. Um, Dick Brewer comes into the fold a little bit. I mean, you're you're, you're really dealing with some uh, understandably um, sort of large personalities. Yeah. Okay. Before Dick Brewer, let's let's uh, uh, Keith Paul. Keith Paul was before the pipeline. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was. He we did the because um, Keith Paul to me seems like a transition era guy, and the pipeliner to me seems like well, sixty seven, sixty eight, like. But fill me in. Okay. It's all it's all a blur. It's a blur. It's a blur for both of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. if I had my book here, I could tell you exactly what when each of them came. Um, Keith Paul first. Uh, Duke Boyd and I went to I think it was Puerto Rico to the World Contest or something. Puerto Rico. Uh huh. Whatever year that was. Yeah. Yeah. One of those years, and yeah. we met Keith there, and he. Seemed like a really nice young man, and and uh, he had a real interest to come to America, and so I made him a deal that uh, he he could you know we, he could come and he was a shaper, so he could come and design his own model, which was the uh, Australian foil. Uh-huh. He did, and uh, he lived at my house with my family and uh, all the. He's such a good-looking young guy that all the little girls on our block, you know, they all thought he was just a... Sure, and without accent. Yeah, Yeah, and with that accent. But, uh, no, he was a wonderful, clean-cut, 
guy, and apparently he, after he left, uh, well, I put him in a, after we, after he got his board going, I put him in a van. We had a van, painted our decals over on the side, and, and sent him back to the to the go to well to Texas and, and the East Coast to uh, stop in shops and promote. And he was he was wonderful because he would go into a dealer and say, "Yeah, you need a whole bunch of these kind of boards and these kind of boards," and I'll, I'll get on the phone to Bing and we'll order them for you. You know, and he just did that. I mean, That's he just cool. he just took charge, and he was a great sales, like a salesman, great salesman, and they all loved him. Yeah. And and he surfed with all the kids from by the shops oh, everywhere good. they went. He was just a, it was a real, real good year. So you often characterize your business as sort of like, I don't know what I was doing. I was just showing up and I was working hard every day. But it does seem to me that there was some forethought into some of this, and especially marketing-wise. Like, you had a really great, you, you know, you... People could count on a Bing ad in every single magazine, yeah. and you had a, a, quite a, an incredible marketing effort. And I know that you give Duke Boyd some of that credit. Well, but, I give him much of that credit. Yeah, I mean, sending uh, Keith Paul in advance. It, it really like a was. Duke there Boyd was no. There was no advance planning right. on my part in the beginning. Uh, it was basically just uh, you know get in there and build the boards that we got the orders for, and 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 things developed. Uh, it wasn't a plan that here's our master plan that we're going to make work over the next three years. Forget that. We, yeah. we didn't have that. Um, but the, when when it became obvious that we had to advertise in Surfer, I did. I started with a small ad, and and then uh, you know they keep coming around and said, "What are you going to add?" Well, it, it was quarterly in the beginning, or, or annually in the beginning. Yeah. And then it went quarterly, and then it went monthly, and then you know it was about that point is when. Uh, Duke, I met Duke, and he was coming in selling Hangton trunks and stuff, and, and we became real good friends. And uh, he started helping me with the ad- advertising. So yeah, that's uh, we did have good advertising program, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't all planned out a year in advance. It was uh, every every what were you going to do for the next issue? That's right. all it was, and yeah. there was no. No major scheme. Right. There was no <laughs> vice president of marketing. With no, him. no. It just we just uh, we just tried to figure, and we did come up with some clever ads. Oh, you did. Yeah. yeah. Some really. It's a, I, I enjoyed rather than just have surfers standing there holding boards and stuff. I enjoyed ones that kind of had some humor to them and stuff like that. And I, yeah, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah. And and so from Keith Paul, um, I had mentioned Dick Brewer and sort of these bigger personalities and I imagine Keith Paul was a big personality but you bring in Dick Brewer who's sort of this legendary guy already right and and you come up with the the Bing Pipeliner which is yeah. this incredible board yeah well, a game Duke, changer really a game changer in bigger waves I think yeah. a narrowed nose yeah. Yeah. Duke thinner. was uh, Duke uh, and I had gone to Hawaii we were, we were spending a month or something in Hawaii and uh, I had a, somebody running my shop that I trusted well, Dan Bendixson and Brian McGinnis, actually the two, and uh, and so we could we could spend a whole month over there surfing, and, and we had this plan because Brewer was popular. We well, I needed somebody like that to kind of like I had Takiyama and Donald, and then Keith, and then I needed an, I needed a new one, you know. So so we approached Brewer, and we we took a. Uh, we took a skilled planer and had it. Uh, well, I took it to the chrome shop to say, "Can you guys chrome this?" And they said, "No, we can't chrome it, but we can polish it." So they polished it and it looked like chrome. So we had this shiny planer. You know, we took it over and 
and made a deal with Brewer and presented him this chrome planer. And so, and we also uh, put a uh, air conditioning unit in uh, at Surfline Hawaii in Honolulu, or in, in White Bell, yeah, in Honolulu. And uh, they had a little shaping bay, and we air conditioned it for Dick. And, and so he made the first pipeliners there, and, and then we started building the pipeliners in in California too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Dick did have, you know, he had his Jock Sutherland and a lot of Jackie Eberle and some of those guys uh, riding pipeliners in, in Hawaii. So that, that was a good promotional deal. It worked yeah, out, worked out sure. well for us. Yeah. But another sort of big personality that can be kind of hard to manage, I imagine there's some f- interesting stories about Brewer. And, and um, I guess my next question is, as you go into the transition the, the shortboard revolution, the transitional era, right? I guess they're just stories, but there's there's sort of I don't want to say rumor, but there's stories that when the transitional era happened, when the short when the longboard went to the shortboard, there's this story that's out there that you guys and I mean the South Bay board manufacturers mm-hmm. were like literally overnight stuck with warehouses full of longboards that never you happened. couldn't sell. Never happened. Not to me, anyway. I don't know about the others, but I never had that problem. Um, but also, this was the drug era, the hippie era. and it 69. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was popular in the early 70s and stuff. It was popular for the in-group kids to as boards were getting shorter because of the Australian influence you know they came over and started basically started the shortboard thing even though Dick will say he started it but I think <laughs> who it was, started it well McTavish Greeno I, I, I would say McTav- McTavish lit the, lit the fuse and uh, and Dick was right on it too. right so but they can argue about yeah that. they will I don't care. <laughs> they have I don't care. but anyway boards were getting shorter yeah and, and uh, several things happened at that point. It was it was the like I said the drug era and the kid and the young kids were getting spacey and this and that and, and there was a lot of uh, some of the in group local kids you know they didn't want the establishment they didn't want labeled boards and stuff so they would the garage built board was kind of a happening thing and. Um, Did this drive you crazy a little? Bit? It was a little. It was a yeah. It frustrating. It was. It was frustrating because uh, what was happening is I had this big factory, a bunch of employees, and the a lot of the older surfers said, "Well, I'm not going to ride a shortboard," and they quit. Yeah. And those were the guys that were paying the money for the boards. Right. Some of the younger guys were make, getting deals or working deals and stuff. But yeah. you know, we were making our living off of the thirty-year-olds, twenty-five-year-olds, the, the, the older guys. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of those guys just said, "I'm out of it. You yeah. Know, forget it." So I could see that I couldn't. The way it was going, I wasn't going to be able to continue the making enough money to keep the thing working so i started looking for something else to do now and you know and greg went greg went fishing hap jacobs went fishing dewey yeah. weber went fishing everybody that was a major manufacturer uh went fishing. hobie sort of still had other things going on the hobie cat and yeah. this and that and so he his kind of factory stayed going but ours in the south bay ours pretty much all went downhill at that point and and during that era like 67 68 69 whatever it was whenever the shortboard revolution thing took took place was it um let never mind that you had backyard shapers and sort of a new culture emerging mm-hmm. 
Was it also a, a case where boards were changing drastically almost every week and it was hard to kind of keep a focus on what we should build? Well, yeah. did people come to you like every month and go, no, 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 that's not the thing anymore. No, the, no, The V-bottom's no. lame. Let's we, go to... We were watching. We, you know, we were watching what was yeah. going on. We had our finger on the pulse pretty good. But was it kind of keeping you awake at night going, things are changing this drastically? No, the thing that was, cha- that was bothering me at night was the fact that we were... We weren't getting the number of sales that, that we needed to have. And and the East Coast really sort of shut down at that point, too. Um, you know, but they, the Bonzer brothers came along. Like, at some point, the yeah, Bonzer brothers yeah, came along, yeah. and that seems like it was a, a resurgence for your brand. We were adapting to shorter and shorter boards, as good or better than our competitors, I feel. I think you might have been the only one that did it. Well, possibly so. Because yeah, we had you know we had several models that were, that were the shorter boards. I mean, these other guys... Closed up shop. Hap closed yeah, up shop. Yeah. Greg Noll closed yeah, up shop. Um, Rick closed up shop. Right. Um, out of that came, you were the only guy standing, in my opinion, right? Yeah, it, now, pretty, Donald Takayama had his label now, and the well, other guys. Kind other of, guys up and down the coast. But in, in our area, I was probably the last one to, to, to hang on. Do you to, think you did? Hang you hang, well, did you hang I, on too I, long? I, no, no. Yeah. Just, just right. And did you and, see? Well, you, the Campbell brothers came in right about please. this time. Uh, Duncan and Malcolm, and they were young guys, long-haired guys, uh, not hippies, but really clean-cut, wholesome young men. And uh, they had this design, and and Mike Eaton was shaping with me at the time, and uh, and we brought them into the office. They had a little eight millimeter. They were they lived in Ventura, uh, up by Santa Barbara. And uh, they brought their 8-millimeter movie in of their boards riding in, at Ventura, which was a, a pretty fast break up there, you know, yeah. beach break. And uh, we, we watched it, and, and both Mike and I saw, saw some tracks that they were making. Because and, and, they, they had this three-fin design, which had the runners as opposed to fins. And a, a double concave in the back. And, and her, the, their father, I guess told them about the Venturi principle of going wide to narrow to wide again and, and the concave, and, and that would add... Oh, add, that's interesting. Add forward momentum and this yeah. and that. And, and they were saying, the, the boards really work, you know, the boards really work, and they were very crude, the boards they built, but but we saw some tracks in those pictures, and Mike and I said, you know, let's let's look into that. Let's, In fact, let's go shape them. And we, right that day... We went into the shaping room. I went in, you know, we had shaping room where we each had a stall. Yeah. We each shaped one that day. And Were uh, Malcolm and Duncan overseeing the yeah, process? Yeah, well, they were there. Yeah. They, they, not necessarily overseeing, but because yeah. they are... They were, they were 18 years old, and they're, <laughs> like, all, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe these old guys are buying this. <laughs> they were, actually, they were in awe of what we were doing, I yeah. think, how we did it. So. I bet. Um, and the boards came out real nice, and, and we let, like, uh, Steve Stickemeyer and Drew Harrison and our team members ride them, and uh, they came back saying, great, you know, they're working great. So we made a deal with Duncan and Malcolm. We'd pay them a, a, a small royalty for every one we built, and they were just ecstatic. To yeah. They went back home, you know, saying, we got a deal. And they had previously gone to Dewey Weber. Uh, they they got kind of got shut out. Yeah. And, uh, and when they came to us, you know, we were receptive, so they were stoked. Yeah, and we made a deal, and they made, they were making a little bit of money, and and uh, and we built them, and and advertised, promoted it, and I think that's what made them 
Did you bring uh, Malcolm it, on as a shaper? No, because Malcolm's he's sure cut his chops somewhere. He's he's a great shaper. Well, well they sure. they were building their own in their garage. Yeah, you know, so they they developed. Yeah, the they got shape. better as they yeah. moved along. Yeah, and they learned a lot. I think hanging around our shop for sure, because we're still good friends. We still sell their boards out of our shop here, and uh, um, you know they. Uh, by by us advertising it, I think it made them acceptable. Yeah, and I don't know if it would have become what it, they 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 attribute our their success to our. Certainly, our it was a it. tipping point moment yeah. when mainstream builders like, yeah. "Hey, we're adapting this cool thing that these two guys from Oxnard have brought to us." And let's. But like Mike Eaton says in our movie, he says. Uh, some people, you know, when we first started making them, he said some people thought it was a gimmick, but it was a pretty good gimmick. Yeah, <laughs> the way he said it. Yeah, no, those, yeah. that's a legitimate. And, uh, it was they were le- legitimate boards. And so. yeah. But but so at some point you you but do this was just a year before I decided I'm out of there because yeah. there wasn't enough there just wasn't enough volume to keep a, a big company going. Yeah, you, and so I you didn't moved. want to downsize into a garage or something. I didn't. Yeah, you know, I had a family at this point, and I needed to, some some stability and security. Yeah, so I I a friend of mine who Brian McGinnis, who was my was my salesman for years, and actually he he was the manager when I wasn't there. He ran the business when I wasn't there. He was, you know, I trusted him explicitly. He had moved to Sun Valley, Idaho, and and got into a moving and storage company. And uh, when I realized I needed something to do, I said, you know, we'd, co- we'd like to come up and visit. Is it, you know, when, I, when we saw it, how neat it was up there, how beautiful the country was, I said, well, you need a partner? You want to do something? <laughs> he, said, he said, yeah, I could use it. You know, I could use the help and a little money. <laughs> so, yeah. so I invested uh, what I had left with him. And uh, I just came from California in 74, where mini storage was just starting. Yeah. So when I got up there, I, I said, you know, there's no mini storage here. I said, we should really look into mini storage. So it took us a year or two before we realized, uh, well, we had to find some help because we couldn't do it financially. Mm. So we found a partner and uh, bought a, bought our first acre and, and uh, built some mini storages, and that worked real well. So we bought another acre, and that worked really well. And we now have six and a half acres in two different facilities wow. up there, and uh, we are retired from it. So yeah. It, it was the mini storage. that yeah. The moving company made a living, but it, it, it didn't allow us to retire. Right. We retired from the mini storage. Yeah. And when you built these first mini storages, did you have obviously you took some plans from something you learned here in California? If you um, well, there, I mean, did there, you learn there as were you companies. Went? There were companies that made many storage buildings, and, okay. we, and we hired them. To I build. see. So construct developers are like, we know how to do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the first ones we started were what they call pole construction, which are big, big creosote kind of posts, post and beam. The barns were made that way in the old days, right? And then out sheeted with corrugated iron, corrugated tin, you know. Right, and so our first section was that, and then as we got into later other, we we developed it in about five phases. So they, towards the end, then it's all metal, all metal construction, all metal buildings. Yeah, but they all look alike; they're all the same color. Yeah, and uh, you know they're old now. They're they're uh, well, I bet. 
from 76, 77 to now yeah. uh, was our, you know, those buildings are getting pretty old, but we keep them up. You know, we reside them when, when we need to. We, yeah. we re, uh, re, re-asphalt when we have to. And, yeah. Uh, we have one meeting a year now to talk about. Where are you going to go? <laughs> what, what, what we need to do here and how's yeah. everything going. And, and yeah. then we have a, 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 the moving company that we started, which we sold to our employees. They manage all the the rentals for the self storage. So. Yeah, that industry is interesting. It it's is kind of fascinating. Yeah, R- Ray Benner. Do you know Ray Benner? No. Ray Benner's a good surfer. He has mini storage up in Oregon, I guess, or up near Greg Knoll, yeah. wherever Greg is up north, Oregon California border. But he has uh, he surfs a lot in Baja, and I surf with him down there. Yeah. But he says the same thing. Great business. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. So, I'm so, glad we did that. Yeah, that's 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 helped out. That's helped you out. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we're we're more or less caught up because now you're out. Of, now you're out of the surf industry. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm back in it. So. You are back. <laughs> you ran into Matt. Well, yeah. Mike Eaton carried on the Bing label. And, okay. And I, well, I first, let go. Yeah. When I moved, I licensed the Bing brand to Larry Gordon at Gordon and Smith right. for 15 years. And uh, he would pay me a $15 royalty for every board. Mike Eaton would go down and shape them. Uh, and several of my other employees went down uh, to work with them, some of the glossers and polishers, and, or the glossers and pin liners and, and so forth, uh, went down there and worked in San Diego. And so then after 15 years... Uh, it was it was over with Larry Gordon. It was dwindling. It was slowing down. Yeah. And then uh, Mike was going to open a little shop, so he opened a little shop and uh, he was building paddle boards and and some surfboards and and he he built the bing boards. But like he says in the movie, he says, you know, I'm I was a shaper. I wasn't a businessman, and that's true. So the the, the bing thing really faded a lot. Well, at this point, you know, I was pretty successful in Sun Valley, so I had I bought a property in Baja, and I was spending a lot of my winters in Baja uh, surfing. And uh, this one day in, two, in the year 2000, I was surfing a little beach break spot right near our place, and I came out of the water and was changing, and I, I was driving a dune buggy at the time, and, and this uh, rental uh, VW drove up with two two short boards and two kids in it, young guys. And uh, and we started talking. It was only, We were the only guys, the four of us, on the beach talking. And, and uh, so one guy was looking at me, and, and he says, are you Ben Copeland? And I said, yeah, I am. And, he said, and this was Matt Calani. And he said, well, I'm shaping boards in, in uh, Hermosa Beach, and I, I even made some for Rick Stoner's son, some Bing and Rick boards, and I owe you royalties for that. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> uh, uh, I said that's great and he says by the way I'd, I'd love to build your boards and I said well Mike Eaton's been building my boards and I would never take it away from him but I'm going to be go- I'm going to be going back in two weeks I'm going to be driving through I'll stop in San Diego and talk to Mike well I did and he said great you know we need a young guy with new blood you know to yeah. do something and uh, he said send him down I'll give him all the decals and stuff I have the labels and things and templates and uh, he can he can run with it and so that's how that developed yeah and i went back through hermosa beach and he paid me my royalties for the bing and rick boards and uh and we made a deal 
that uh, he could start building the bings, and so he went down to Mike Eaton's and got all the stuff, and and he's been doing it ever since. He's, and the first, I will admit, the first, the first year or so, uh, he was a great shaper. I, I, well, I found out before I even made the deal with him that he was a good shaper. He understood longboards, shortboards, mid links. Uh, he understood the whole manufacturing process, and I knew when I made the deal with him that he was going to be able to handle the quality end of it, and so I was I was pretty stoked about that, but he wasn't really a great businessman at the time. He didn't keep really good records. His, my For the first year or so, my royalties and stuff would be really late and this and that, and, and then one day, uh, Hap Jacobs came in with his team writer, which was Margaret Margaret Yao and uh, he introduced her to Matt and wanted Matt to shape uh, uh, Jacob's board for her f to ride for the team and so Matt did and, and he and Margaret kind of got together and ended up uh, becoming a uh, a pay, you know, a pair. Or yeah. whatever, what do you call it? They're married. <laughs> They're they husband and wife. <laughs> All of a sudden, got married and uh, started having kids and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and she turns out to had a, had a business major in college. Yeah. So she was very organized. She totally organized the whole thing. And really, to this day, the combination of the two of them, what Matt can do in the factory to make get the board, the quality of the boards done, get them done, get them done right, and her ability to run the other end of the business uh, the paperwork and the bookkeeping end and uh, and together they you know it's hard to be a, a couple and run a business when you're yeah you know when you're, you're always, living together yeah you're, but, but they're yeah. doing a really good job of that I mean the first year or so I mean there was some some headbutting but now they're, I, you know, I, I, when I'm down here, I stay with them, and, and uh, they've got a really the good, roles have been they've got a carved out. really good system worked out, and, yeah. and they're uh, and, and the company's running very smooth, and they're doing really well, and I couldn't be happier. You yeah, know, I, I just now my job now is just to be kind of an ambassador. You know, I I come and when I'm in town, I they let me stay in their studio apartment. I hang around the shop and. Meet people. And You're like a shop Grammy again. I'm a shop Grammy, yeah. <laughs> Kiss the babies. And yeah. Hug the girls. Just like at Belzies. <laughs> Go yeah. get a cup of Joe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, and that's what I like. And you know, and I and I just recently took a trip to France with Matt and. Uh, and, and we visited the dealers over there, and they were all. Stoked. How did that go for? Oh, they were they were overwhelmed with stoked with us. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Just the fact that we were both there, and yeah. we signed posters, and this. And we had, we had one guy kissing our feet. Wow! I, I'm sort of gone. Wow! He was. I think he'd been drinking a little. Yeah, bit. he might have been. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he was so stoked. He was kissing our feet. And he wanted wow. us to. He wanted both of us to autograph his car. So we wow. did. But anyway, yeah. I mean, every shop we went to, we were uh, received really well. Cool. And the boards, the boards all look really good. We just did. A, the surf show in uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, last week or so. Well, that's where I saw you. Yeah, and I was and like, "Wow, Bing is." Go I mean, you're, you've been in this industry for sixty years, maybe more. Well, seventy we just, years. Last year was our sixtieth anniversary. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bing. Thanks for uh, spending the time with us no, here today. I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Scott. Mm -hmm.